Jim Stroud fights to save America from the woke agenda by exposing the left and inspiring right turns with facts and informed opinions. Prepare yourself for intriguing interviews, political snark, and social commentary from a patriotic and conservative perspective. And it all starts in three, two, one. The Things I Think About podcast begins now. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Things I Think About podcast. I'm your host, Jim Stroud. And with me, returning, is a very special guest. Special guest, please tell us who you are and what you do. Hey, Jim, this is Marcel speaking, Marcel Kshana. I'm a German journalist. I'm a former China correspondent and a book author and a podcaster. And I think we're going to start talking about China again. So, yes. yeah, happy to... Uh, that you host me again. Thank you very much for that. Thank you so much, sir, for being on the show. I, I say so many times China is not our friend, but I want to clarify it. When I say that, I mean the CCP <laughs> is not our friend because there are a lot of uh, Chinese citizens who uh, don't like the CCP as much as we do, I think. Is that true? That's true. Yeah, of course. The society is very diverse. You have 1.4 billion people. So the party likes always to emphasize that they speak for the whole nation for 1.4 billion people but of course this is this is not the reality um they want to represent all the people but uh, as i said it's a diverse society with diverse uh, demands desires and uh, and also ways of life and and uh, and histories and uh, well people are of course not totally uh nobody's really happy with being told by his government what to do and what to do and what not to do. It's just an arrangement. And uh, the party tries to make people feel more uh, relaxed about it by providing the opportunity to make a lot of money. And uh, so I think this is, this is uh, still the core base for the Chinese legit, for the uh, legitimacy of the, of the, of the regime. Sure. 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 Money makes the world go round in a lot of people's minds for sure. Uh, I want to get your reaction to uh, of several articles, because as I was reading, looking up uh, China in, in preparation for our call, I thought, wow, a lot of things are going on in China, <laughs> just as a lot of things are going on, going on here. Uh, this first quote I want to read to you is from the National Pulse. The headline says, by whatever means possible, China communist takeover of Taiwan imminent, asserts regime flack. And this is the first few lines of the article. A top advisor to several Chinese Communist Party affiliated think tanks, as well as the New York-based Asia Society, gave a stern warning to those opposing a Chinese Communist Party takeover of Taiwan. He suggested the regime will pause the policy by whatever, oh, excuse me, the regime will pursue the policy by whatever means possible. Speaking with LBC presenter Matt Frey, Victor Gao declared, nothing in the world can stand in the way of the unification of China. Adding the goal would be accomplished through peace, through preferably peaceful means, but if not, peaceful means whatever means possible. Unification of China is a must, he adds. Dun, dun, dun. Was, it's interesting because I, if I remember correctly, Taiwan was never a part of China. So how can you reunify something that was never a part of China? Am I, is that correct or am I missing something? Well, Taiwan uh, was a part of China, basically, but it was the Republic of China and uh, mm. the Republic of China were run by the nationalists who lost the uh, civil war in China uh, against the, uh, the communists. And then they flew to Taiwan to build up their country, basically there. And, and, and beginning in the, uh, in the 40s and the 50s, they also claimed the mainland for being actually Republic of China and illegally taken over by the communists. And now they just uh, flipped it upside down, basically. And they say, well, this is uh, part of the People's Republic of China, which is, this is what the experts or the analysts actually argue about. And I would say, no, it's not a part of the, of the People's Republic. It is the Republic of China. And it's a, it's a, it's a country, it was, very 
wide or widely recognized uh, in the 50s and in the 60s before Steiner started its economical rise and um, put other nations um, under pressure to not have diplomatic ties anymore with Taiwan if you want to benefit from the economical growth on the mainland. And so this is why all the nations, all the countries and government, or a lot of them, most of them in the world decided um, step by step to, uh, to, to lower their ties or to lower the, the, the exchange with the Taiwan, the official exchange with the Taiwanese government and rather prefer uh, the exchange with the, with the mainland to also benefit, it, uh, benefit from it uh, economically. But if it's a part of, of, of People's Republic, no, it's not. Hmm. Hmm. So I guess in a my Western way of thinking, Taiwan would be the anti-communist section of, of China, so to speak. They're anti-communist. They're free. They're a free country as opposed to uh, being under regime like the People's Republic. I mean, like the Chinese Communist Party. Am I understanding correctly? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the, the Taiwanese people. Uh, they built up their country um, as the Republic of China uh, in the last century, mm. uh, coming from a dictatorship, also turning to a democracy. And this is something that makes people very proud in Taiwan because it's a very successful democracy. It's a very progressive uh, and very tolerant democracy. Um, and it's, it's like a little, a little seed in, surrounded by, by, or well, next to this big, neighbor mainland China, communist China dictatorship, uh, and people are totally not willing to let that go. You have, of course, forces in Taiwan who are interested in uh, closer ties with China because they also benefit from it economically. Sure. But you also have a lot of people who are scared that they sell out their freedom step by step by accepting more and more into uh, or more and more deeper relations, economical relations with the mainland, because they also know what the aim is for the Chinese regime, for the Communist Party, that it is not about uh, building a brighter future for all the countries around, but it's rather the uni unification. This is what it's all about. And uh, of course, you know, when, uh, when they lure people with economic benefits, uh, you get, they hope to, to convince people that it's the better option, they will be better off to reunify with the mainland uh, to curb the protest or to curb the opposition of this idea. And um, the last years actually showed pretty clearly that the Taiwanese society is uh, on a wider scale, not really willing to accept that. Uh, I'm sure they are not interested in having a war with the mainland because they probably are in a bad position to go on war with China, even with sure. US. Uh, support or Japanese support, but still uh, people are not willing to just give away their freedom. It's their country. They build it up. They built up their political system. And suddenly uh, the mainland comes and tells them, no, guys, uh, you'll be better off if you are uh, under our under our authoritarian uh, regime. And uh, uh, it's, uh, it's getting it's getting more difficult right now to, to convince the Taiwanese. So I don't see a peaceful reunification possible at least not from the, from the Taiwanese side. I remember uh, when Trump was in office, a couple of incidents, this came up. Uh, at one point he was looking at buying Iceland and people were making fun of him. And, and he was saying uh, what a strategic position it would be for the United States to have a, have a base and to own Iceland there. Uh, it was also speculated that he may want to look at making Taiwan, a U.S. territory. I think there was a time when there was some sort of protest going there and a lot of Taiwanese were waving American flags. And so pundits were saying, hmm, what if we were to annex Taiwan and make it like, you know, Guam or Puerto Rico, just make it an, a, a territory on, on the United States? If that had happened, <laughs> uh, I predict Chinese would go crazy. <laughs> the CCP would go crazy and have the United States be that close to them. Um, but, but what do you think would have happened if, if they were taught, not even if it happened, if there were if there were strong considerations, what do you think would have happened? Well, I, that would be the opposition of, 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 well, of the of the Western world as well. I think I mean, you, mm. can't, you can't blame Russia for 
for an action of the Krim, for example, uh, and for China's demand on Taiwan, but on the other way, just make it a, make it a Western, make it part of the Western world, part, part even part of the U.S. territory. Uh, this that wouldn't go through, and I, that wouldn't make a lot of friends for the U.S. I think but you can't argue that way. It's very inconsistent. I think if you, if you on the one hand. Uh, you, you accuse the Russians uh, for doing this in, 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 on the Krim mm -hmm. and, uh, and then doing it by yourself in Taiwan. And I don't think that this is in the interest of the Taiwanese people as well. It's still Chinese people, the Han ethnic, and uh, they are proud people. Um, I, think, um, I think this idea is before this really comes, I think they really, they, China would really go on war. Uh, with the US when the US would take these steps or with when when Taiwan would uh, would consider doing that. So I, I think this is out of the question. Mm, okay. Okay. I was just sort of curious because I, 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 I thought that my thinking was if the United States did take over Taiwan as a territory, that that would put China in check to an extent, you know, um, but of course, I could misread the situation that that might be enough for them to, to have a war, to start a war since they want it so bad. I don't know. This is my speculation. Well, China would, would see it as a they, you see how how easily they. They feel uh, provoked, uh, provocated, provocated, provoked. Yeah. Provocated. Pro yeah. Mm -hmm. um, by 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 any by any act that even acknowledge Taiwan as a. As, a, as an own country. Yeah. And so taking it that step forward would make them run crazy. Uh, uh, this, this would definitely, uh, in the wake of it, it would be definitely be not good for all of us, I think. It wouldn't be a good hmm. idea. Yeah, to, to your point, I'm thinking of um, the Tom Cruise movie, Top Gun, the sequel, that's uh, coming out soon. He had a Taiwanese flag on his jacket and yeah. China made them take it off. <laughs> I was like, "Wow, wow!" Yeah, you see, they are so they are very, very uh, um, sensitive on everything. Um, mm -hmm. This is Chinese tactics overall. That uh, that applies for all kind of subjects. Everything China regards is its its national interests. Um, everything that that just uh, details a little bit. From that straight line, what China uh, is actually providing, they immediately blame it as anti-Chinese, as provocation, mm -hmm. and uh, as a threat to regional stability. And in this, in the wake of uh, a threat of regional instability, it becomes a geostrategic instability very quickly as well. So. Uh, this is Chinese strategy, the Communist Party strategy, to be very, very sensitive. And one of the big assets they have is still their economic power. They immediately threat everyone. Okay, you don't play our game. Oh, you might suffer from it for, for whatever reason. Uh, economically, we will find ways to, to hurt you. Um, sometimes they formulate that very clearly. That's straight. And sometimes they just, you know, between the lines. But, you know, this is... Uh, the permanent threat and the businesses then go to their governments and uh, say, oh, please, the lobbyists, please be careful. We don't want to harm our businesses uh, and uh, which would also harm uh, the, the economical power of Western countries. And so this is, a, this is a strategy that works. This is how China actually made their way up also uh, and, and gaining more and more influence worldwide. By, by always threatening others, you don't get access anymore to our market if you don't play our game. Yeah, and they, they play their game well, to, to your point, for sure. They do. They do. They are smart. I see that in Hollywood a lot. You know, uh, there was, um, <laughs> this sort of shocked me. This, this showed me how powerful China was it's in, in a weird way and how hypocritical the left is here in Hollywood. Uh, when this Star Wars movie um, debuted, the last one, um, uh, fit the name of it, uh, but it was a you know somewhat of a hit over here in the United States. When they were promoting it in China, they airbrushed the African American character off the movie posters. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, 
But one of the main characters in the in the movie is is a, is a black guy who, who has romantic relations with the the lead female character um, in the movie. So his face is all over the place in the posters over here. But in China, uh, I forget where in China they airbrushed him out to where he wasn't on the posters. He's still in the movie, but he wasn't on the posters. And I thought, over here in the states, that's the kind of thing that people will be like outrage and. And they're oppressing and racism and, you know, let's protest and burn something. Uh, you know, a certain segment of our population would do that. Mm-hmm. But it was silence over it. Maybe the maybe the mainstream media suppressed the story because I, I only heard about it secondhand. I didn't hear about it in the mainstream, in mainstream press. I heard about it from somebody who was over there and they were like surprised. It, it just amazes me that that kind of thing happened. And then you have basketball players uh, who were over there. And they won't denounce uh, the Uyghur camps uh, over there in China. They won't make any kind of political stand. Um, I think there was a particular wrestler who was made to apologize because he said something about Taiwan instead of China. And he says, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize, you know, I'm going to get. He did that in Chinese, right? Didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. The apology in Chinese, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, man, this is so weird. So if you do it. If it's done over there, the left mainstream media over here has no problem with it because they don't really talk about it. They don't denounce it. They don't say what what an outrage. They just it just pretend like it doesn't exist, mm-hmm. you know. And then over here, if you you know step on someone's toe by accident, you're a racist, and it's in all the news. Is mm-hmm. the double standard is crazy? But to see that that kind of thing happen in China and no one over here says a word. Is just really amazing and unnerving. Um, but that's not to say that China is all powerful because they have their issues, um, especially around finances. I want to read to you this, this article um, from The Diplomat. The headline is, Evergrande is a symptom, not cause of China's debt woes. Uh, and the f- first few sentences here. Evergrande, China's wobbling property developer, has found itself the subject of global concern and speculation as it seeks a way out of a tightening liquidity crunch and serious over-indebtedness. Analysts are talking about whether Evergrande will default on its debts, pay them off by generating cash through sales of its electric car and property management businesses, or face a bailout by the government. Evergrande's problems are not small. The company has more than 70,000 investors installed construction on homes for over a million home buyers. Yet we can assume there will be other Evergrands in the future due to structural flaws in China's financial system. This is because Evergrande isn't the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. The main issue is over indebtedness. <laughs> Reaction to that little quote. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, uh... The debts are huge and it has been promoted by Chinese government for many decades, basically. Uh, the banks were, were urged to issue huge amounts of money to real estate developers to make uh, the economy, the economy uh, still, still running and uh, to produce the high uh, GDP China needs every year to produce new jobs, create new jobs, new wealth to make people happy. So. Um, uh, the the investment in in real estate or the, or the, the, the loan issuing for the real estate companies uh, was definitely driven by 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 the government's desire. Uh, they curb it once in a while when they see the bubble overheats maybe and it, it seems to burst. And now we're at the point with Evergrande where one of these big developers really is uh, in trouble. They have three hundred billion US dollar of debts. Mm. Um, 90% of that are held by Chinese banks. So this is one concern that a default of Evergrande could actually um, provoke a, uh, well, that Lehman moment maybe for the Chinese banking system. Um, but I don't see that happen because the Chinese government will do everything necessary to avoid that. Um, they will not avoid, they will spin the wheel as far as possible because they want their companies to, to do proper business and not to build it up on, on, uh, on future plans, not to, to be 
uh, well, to overspin the wheel, but by, by, by taking too many loans uh, and uh, to building up too many debts. So uh, um, they want to, 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 to teach them a lesson and they are sure that all the industries in the country have an eye on it very closely what happens now, because if you educate one, you educate all the others. Um, but they will avoid that the happiness, the un sorry, the unhappiness of the investors, especially um, normal people like, like you and me, mm -hmm. uh, investors, that they are turning too unhappy because um, they are always, and this is the second aspect of that, uh, the Chinese regime is always very afraid of social unrests popping up. And in a system where a lot of wealth is created at the, at the stock exchange, it's, I think, a real threat for the Chinese government to motivate people to invest and then also need to take the blame by these people when there is a default and suddenly the money is gone. So that makes people really angry. Um, and angry Chinese people are uh, a pain in the neck, definitely. They can, they can be very hard, very tough. Even in, a, in, a, in an authoritarian system, people are very, very uh, reluctant. If they feel uh, treated unfair or if they feel entitled to protest for a certain reason, people do it instead of the authority and background of where they live. Um, and such social unrest is always one of the core concerns of the Communist Party because not everybody is invested in, uh, in Evergrande. But if you have angry investors, other people who have other concerns with their authoritarian regime or with the system itself might come up with the idea to also protest, not for the investment reason, but for other reasons. They see, okay, the, the investors, they have their trouble. We have our trouble here, so we also protest. So this is like an avalanche effect, I think, that this is what the Chinese government fears. It's not about 70,000 70, people isolated to invest to protest. It's about the avalanche effect of it. And, and so it's very interesting to see what they do. Um, they will push Evergrande to definitely to a certain point where the company needs to uh, need to compensate their investors, I think, though the company has to take their share to make people happy. And, uh, and then we'll see what's going to happen. But uh, as I said, I'm convinced that there will be no Lehman uh, moment. There will be no, no fallout of the, of, the, of the system itself. The Chinese government will keep it uh, stable. They, they did it uh, in 2008, 2009, and uh, they still have the means, the financial means, and also the political power to do that. And this is what they're going to do. It seems that the, as you said, the government is, is afraid of its people. Um, China has a, a huge population. <laughs> the majority of the population is upset with China. They get really overthrow the, the authorities in a matter of weeks or days if they were angry enough uh, to do that. How close has China come to being overthrown that maybe we here in the States don't hear about because they control the media? No, I, I think for the last two decades, it's pretty stable. Um, and because they've been... Uh, all the problems that occurred, uh, they've, been, they've been isolated very, very quickly from other problems. And they try to, to the censorship is very strict on it. Uh, so the government is really um, pretty, you um, should, what's the word? Sorry, I'm looking for the right word. Um, they're very skilled. They are very skilled in, in balancing that out for the moment. Um, and, and they showed that for 20 years now. So. Um, it, it, it's not that we're not at that point where the government is, 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 is about to be overthrown uh, because still there's a lot of, of, of economic growth, which makes a lot of people, also influential people in China, happy. And if you keep uh, a share or a big part of the, of the people happy with, uh, with generating more income and more wealth, um, the system will be fine. Um, 
they need to keep up that people are able to believe that they also can take their share in the future of the growing wealth. This is important. When people start to doubt that they will take their share, they will get frustrated. As long as they are in the position to, to provide this kind of dream and, and convince people it's also you who can benefit from it or profit from it, uh, the, the system is pretty stable because people you know, living for seven or, seven or eight decades now uh, in a dictatorship and uh, five decades of it in, in, in poverty, all of them basically, and suddenly the same system gives you the opportunity to create wealth. It's a deal for yourself, you know, why crying for, why, why asking for more freedom for a lot of people when at least you get some wealth. <laughs> it's, it, is, it is an advantage to, you know, early in the early years, everybody was poor. Now everybody seems to have the chance to get rich. And this is what the model is actually running on, on this, on this uh, belief that everybody gets his chance. So um, no, they're not close to be overthrown. And um, as long as they keep the machine running, uh, I, can, I can think they can, uh, I think they, 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 help, they hold their people in check. Um, if there is the threat of social unrest popping up by, by disbelief in this dream, then it's going to be difficult for the system. But we're not at that point anytime soon, I think. Not within the next five years. Definitely not, I think. And they've changed their, their recent child policies. Like they want to have three children now, right? Right, yes. That's well, this is something, yeah, they, they you know, the one-child policy is now, is a, of course, it's a disaster because the demography, uh, demography now uh, is uh, towards the, 2050, um, there will be a lot of older people, less younger people. And so the workforce is shrinking. Mm. And by a shrinking workforce, you don't have enough people to finance the social system for the elderly. Another problem is with one child. A lot of people in China rely um, on, on their children, actually, to take care of them when they're getting old because the, the, the social system is not is not solid enough yet. Sure. And if you only have one child, but there is two parents, and uh, that means that that one child has to take care of, 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 of two parents. And this um, this is simply this is simply not possible if you if you if you if you add on also the grandparents and stuff, it's what happens in China that the young people who make the money, they take care of the family. Um, support them and uh, with one child it's, it's just too less and now by, by uh, toppling over the one child policy they try to um, to, to, uh, to turn around 180 degrees and motivate people to get more children to have a stable workforce because China is not an, uh, an immigrant country they don't have an immigration policy that invites foreigners to come over there's very least foreigners in, in China living basically and they want to keep their good jobs also for the Chinese, basically. It's not their idea to bring, to bring a lot of uh, uh, people who, um, who take the good jobs in China. So um, they want to motivate people to get more children, to stabilize the workforce. But now you see in the 21st century, third decade, that people are not willing to, even if they can, to have more children than one because it is simply too expensive. You don't have the time, the pressure in China for a lot of people, white collar people is very, very high in their jobs. They have long working hours. They don't have the time to take care of the kids. So the grandparents take over, but they're getting older. So what to do? You just say, okay, one kid is enough. If you want to support that kid um, in terms of education, you have to invest a lot of money. You don't have the money to do it for two kids, uh, let alone for three kids. So it is the right decision to abandon the one-child policy, but it is probably too late to turn around the problem with the demography. And this, this, this is going to be a big, big problem in, in two or three decades for China, for sure, for sure. That's why they're, they are frowning so much on this phenomenon called uh, Neijuan laying flat. 
where a lot of the young people are feeling overstressed and they said they're not going to go for those high tech, high powered jobs. They're going to just, I don't know, be a farmer or be a gardener and just sort of chill well, out. The, the young generation, this is the generation, they were still part of the one child policy. So their, their parents, they saw their parents actually uh, working very, very much, spending a lot of time and energy uh, in, their, in their work and seeing their parents not necessarily being happy. Uh, maybe a lot of them also have been separated from their parents because the parents left hometown and went to the big cities to find a job and to, to start a career maybe. Um, and they were not allowed to accompany them. And, and the whole thing actually made a lot of young people just be frustrated about it. They, they grew up separated. A lot of them, million, tens of millions of Chinese young people are growing up in China without their family, without their, their parents, actually. And, and they're at a point where they, where they ask themselves, okay, if I see what happens with, with my parents and with my family, do I want that for myself? I don't think so. So um, this is why, why, of course, there is kind of movements that, that start to, 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 to oppose all these idea of, of 12 hours day to 12 hour working days and, and still uh, believing in, in that dream by just working hard enough. Uh, they also can see that it's not always successful working hard enough. A lot of people work hard in China and a lot of people still don't generate a lot of wealth. They're still on the lower level of, of uh, well, of wealthiness or what you want to call it. So this is the frustration. Yeah, um, of course, this uh, system frustrates people. We don't hear a lot about the frustration, though, because we have the censorship, which is very close. People are isolated from each other. The government has a look on social media very closely. So before you start anything that is bigger than two, three people, basically, in a group and talk about, about um, the negative, uh, the flip sides of this whole system, uh, the censors go in, the police comes in and warns people, and they they just curb these kind of, of discussions. So this is how they uh, still control that kind of movements. Hmm. But there's a strong undercurrent, a silent majority, so to speak, that wants to it is, You know what? The thing is, it is difficult to, to, to judge about it. You know, from my personal experience, I would say I met so many people who are not very happy with that. You meet so many people, even with good jobs, who say, well, we don't like this, we don't like that. But if you leave the official line, also, um, uh, also studies, even by Western universities, you see a lot of um, uh, results that actually tell the opposite, that a lot of people are not too unhappy. I still would doubt not the credibility of the science itself, but the results. You need to be very careful. If a, if in an authoritarian country, if you do an uh, academic study in uh, uh, like questioning people um, on certain things, it is conducted by a Chinese company. I still don't believe that when a Chinese company goes countryside, asks people knocking the door, say, hey, we're taking a, a poll. We want to know about this and this and this. Are you happy in China? I don't believe that most of the people telling the truth because they don't know who they right. are. Right. Uh, they are very careful. And if they ask him, do you, are you better off than 20 years ago? They say, yeah, I am. Uh, but the conclusion that, um, um, that the conclusion that, uh, that uh, they are, that they're really that happy, I would, I would doubt it. Still, I don't have figures that can prove the opposite. It's just my personal experience I made by talking to a lot of people in China when I always thought, you know what, people accept the system. Yes, they do. But do they like it? No. The most people I talk to in China, and I talk to a lot of people in nine years in China, I always thought like everybody has his criticism and his point where he said, well, you know, I'm not that happy. So it's not that, well, that we're back to the first question. It's not that the Chinese company speaks for 1.4 billion people. People are diverse. They have their own opinions. And... Um, and uh, they are prepared to, to make their mind up. It's that, that they are totally isolated from, from, from information, from free information, which it makes it more difficult for them to, to judge about things. But they are not stupid. They know their government um, refrains them from, from taking, from sucking in the, all, these, all, these, all these informations and, and make up their minds. But uh, yeah, it's, it, as I say, it's a bit poking in, in, in the dark. Um, yeah. When I say so, but my impression is no. Um, there's a lot of people. 
they are arranging with the system, but happy? No, not too much. Interesting. Interesting. Especially in light of uh, this next article, this from the, this is a quote from the Associated Press. Warning of a potential new Cold War, the head of the United Nations implored China and the United States to repair their, quote, completely dysfunctional, end quote, relationship before problems between the two large and deeply influential countries spill over even further into the rest of the planet, end quote. Um, what do you think of the possibility of a kinetic war between China and the United States? I mean, sorry, what war? Cold uh, War, said. Yeah, they say this. They're saying Cold War, um, but I'm saying kinetic war, meaning missiles and bombs and whatnot, because I think China has been at war with the United States for a long time, but the United States hasn't necessarily been at war with China for for a long time. Uh, what do you think of that? No, I, I, I don't see that coming. I, I, I don't want to see that coming. This is actually, no, I, I don't want to see I, it coming either. I, I, I don't know. I, I yes, we're 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 entering a stage of cold war, whatever you want. Some people call it cold peace because it's not as, uh, um, because there's they are too too much too much intertwined to go to to have a cold war. You can't compare that to the times when we had the. The Eastern Bloc with with the Soviet Union and the US. It was a different time. The Soviet Union was not as economically powerful as as as, as uh, the Western world back then. True. Now, I mean, look how many companies we have in China. Western companies. Look how many Chinese companies we have in 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 the Western world. How much investment we have uh, either ways. So nobody is interested in that escalation i think and yeah but but still if you want to call it a, a cold war what we i think we're entering a stage where where we definitely have a sort of decoupling hmm. not on a total extent because that as, as well would hurt too many interests worldwide but the western world starts to starts to uh, build up new supply chains in other parts of the world, uh, new markets and, and uh, new sources for income because they know about uh, the challenges ahead. Um, technology standards are a big, big subject. This is something that probably is going to be very um, crucial for the next two decades to come. Um, so if one country sets the standard and if it is china the chinese side will definitely make it even more difficult for the western world or for western companies to take part they will they will um, uh, formulate the rules for everyone and if you want to take part in that play you play by the chinese rules and this is kind of this uh, uh, cold war cold free uh, cold cold peace whatever you want to call it um, that there will be a competition in technical uh, for, for technical standards, for standards worldwide, mm. for also for alliances between between powerful industrial nation, industrial nations, and on the other side, uh, Chinese interests and maybe uh, um, relations with Russia or with African states or Southeast Asian. Um, this will be well, basically the the. Um, the field where we play this this game will be the whole world. Yeah, indeed. Um, I'm confident we're not going on a war anytime soon, but the tensions will rise. I'm I'm I don't see an, a resort from rising tensions. I think we're just running into it, and uh, the Chinese side proved a lot uh, very often within the last years that they're not prepared for a lot of concessions. And I think the Western world started to wake up a little bit. Corona, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, the Uyghurs, all these subjects made people in the West very concerned and um, made them wake, wake up. And so the preparation to accept more Chinese demand and, and play for, for Chinese rules by Chinese rules is getting lower in the West. And this will rise the tensions between 
China and alliances on the one hand and the Western world on the other hand. I wonder, and I have no data for this, but I wonder, could one make a correlation between China and U.S. Um, aggression towards each other and the proliferation of Chinatowns? Because there are Chinatowns in all the major cities here in the U.S., um, just as they are, I'm assuming, in other places around the world. Um, from a standpoint of wondering if that could be a potential threat or is that a, a pseudo cultural community versus sleeper cell? I'm, I'm really going bonkers no, and thinking um, that. No, I think, no, I think, I think that would really go the, the wrong way. I think, I think yeah. China communities um, abroad, uh, most of the people are, it's, they have, they have an integrity we, we, we should basically trust on. I, I think there's a lot of people abroad, uh, a lot of Chinese people abroad who, um, who don't have any interests uh, to support the communist regime interests uh, in the US or elsewhere. But of course, there's a lot of influence coming over from China, but it's not on that level. It's not in the Chinatowns where that influence. Yes, there is, of course, Chinese interest, but on the lower base, this is comparable to, to all other uh, communities um, abroad uh, from any other nations in the world. But of course, I think that uh, the influence by the Chinese regime on the upper level of society, politics, economy, uh, culture, this is, this is mind-blowing how intensively and consequently the Chinese government goes into all these, um, into all these levels or walks of life in the Western world and not by uh, blowing out Chinese propaganda, but by making friends in the Western world, by convincing Western people, academics, politics, uh, manager, whatever, um, about the good intentions the Chinese regime has. And by telling all these people that they belong to a very, very small group who really understand China, they flatter people and make people believe without, uh, or make people um, act in the interest of the Chinese government without knowing they are actually representing Chinese interests. That happened in the past very often with, even with ambassadors to, to China, the Canadian, former Canadian ambassador, uh, former Sweden, Swedish ambassador, they actually represented the Chinese interests because they were influenced by the Chinese side and they were convinced they were doing the right thing they, because they were told they would understand China while the rest of your country doesn't. You are the one who can solve the situation. So tell them, this is what we really want and this is how your country needs to handle it. And so the people start to talk on behalf of the Chinese regime, believing they're doing good, but indeed they are actually representing Chinese interests and harming um, the, or, or lowering um, the interests or the, 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 the power of the Western, the Western countries, countries they're coming from. Yeah, you see a lot of that with Canada's uh, Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. I mean, he is truly uh, uh, on the China bandwagon. I, I, the way I understand it, uh, he's allowing them to play war games uh, in Canada, uh, Chinese soldiers, which I would think make... U.S. generals nervous to know that at the border in Canada, there, there are uh, Chinese soldiers running drills. Uh, that should awaken our side to a lot of different things, uh, to be certain. And to, and to the point about the Chinatown, uh, that was a really sort of a far-fetched conspiracy theory. I've always had fun. I've never felt um, that I was under siege or concerned or anything um, because of Chinatown. Uh, it was just a, a thought that just popped in my head as we were talking, just a big clarity there. Uh, big love for Chinatown. 
Um, well, you have a lot of people in, uh, in, in, in Chinatown or no, normal Chinese people who oppose the, the Communist Party, but they are not as loud as the supporters. Yeah. Because even if you, if, you, if, you, if you oppose China as a Chinese citizen, and even if you're not a Chinese citizen anymore, if you, if you become a US citizen or you're a German citizen or whatever, you still uh, are um, at risk to be reminded by Chinese intelligence or by Chinese police that your family is still back in China, that mm -hmm. you should take care. There was that case of that Swedish, uh, a Hong Kong, a Chinese born, Hong Kongese, Swedish citizen, a book uh, publisher. And he published China critical books in Hong Kong. And, and he was kidnapped when he was on holiday or when he wasn't on holiday. Well, yeah, I think he was on holiday in Thailand. He was kidnapped to the mainland and the official version was, well, he actually uh, was uh, confessing all his crimes and that he did wrong and he wanted to give back his Swedish citizenship and he wanted to become a Chinese citizen again. I mean, guess, I, I, don't, I don't think that uh, this certain gentleman was wow. uh, doing that um, from his free will. Rather, he was forced to do it. But this sure. is the power, how far the power goes, right? In every country, in every country in the world, uh, China is represented uh, via its uh, official line of, of official representative, representations like embassies, consulates, uh, businesses, uh, associations and stuff. And um, the people who oppose the system need to be very careful even if they are abroad. So you don't hear, hear these voices, but there is of course opposition abroad in sure. the Chinese community. And you have that in, in China, China, in Chinatowns in the US all over as well, of course. Well, well, uh, one last quote uh, before we, we uh, end things here. Time is, well, it always flies by when I'm talking to yeah, you. Fine, so here's, uh, here's the title, uh, and this is from American Military News. Putin reportedly accepts China's invitation to the 2022 Winter Olympics. And a couple lines here. The Russian President Vladimir Putin has accepted an invitation to attend the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing, according to Russian media reports. The state-run news agency on September 16th quoted Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov as saying Putin has accepted an invitation from Chinese President Xi Jinping with delight. Delight, that's the word that delight. stands out to me. <laughs> what do you make of that delight <laughs> from that? You know, I mean, I mean, these kind of systems, right? I mean, let, Russia is not as, as authoritarian as China. Uh, it's, it's moving into that direction. But um, of course, you know, they give legitimation to each other. Mm. They need that. They use it for their internal, for the domestic propaganda. Sure. You know, uh, you can read in Chinese new newspapers how many Southeast Asian and African countries actually are uh, supporting the Chinese, uh, the Chinese Olympics and uh, to, to, to give credibility and legitimation to the whole thing. And, and Russia is a big player in the world. And so, of course, um, Russia needs China support. Uh, China needs Russia's support to oppose um, any Western alliances. And uh, so I, I believe they are delighted, of course. They didn't expect otherwise, for sure they didn't. Um, mm. But the next Olympic Games that might take place in, the, in, in Russia, 2014 was last time, in Sochi, the Winter Olympics. Um, I don't remember, but uh, I'm sure the, the Chinese gave, gave uh, credit to that as well. So uh, this is tit for tat. And um, yeah, I mean, they officially uh, call each other good friends. And uh, friends support each other, especially when they are authoritarian. Um, they need each other's support to legitimate uh, domestically, but also internationally. Yeah. Do you think if China were to make a play at the U.S. and turn into a real war, that Russia would be on their side? Who? Wow. I I don't I don't think so. I don't think so. I but I this is really also like guessing. I but I don't think so. I, 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 the Russians would be very, very careful because they enter such a, uh, such a, well, at least on an official, uh, official level, such a, such a contention. But I mean, you never know. But uh, no, I don't think that that's that's going to happen. No. Hmm. 
Good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> good, good to hear. Marcel, you shared a lot of information as always. Your opinion is valued and appreciated here. If people wanted to learn more about you and follow more of your content, how can they find you online? Well, they need to speak a little German, I'm, I'm afraid. But, uh, <laughs> well, at least uh, my, my, my name and .com is my, my webpage and uh, you, can, you can get my book there and you can uh, get to my podcast, Poking with, Stop, Pot, Poking with Chopsticks, uh, also via Spotify and stuff. I do that with a Chinese friend. She is a German citizen now and uh, it's in English. Uh, because uh, her English is uh, still a, a little better than her German, and so we do it in English. And we're talking, we're talking uh, current Chinese subject and matters and uh, movements, whatever, everything that is interesting in, in regard of China. So, who wants to 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 join and listen? Everybody is welcome. And thank you, uh, Jim, for for inviting me again. It's great fun to talk to you every time. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And to make it easier for my listeners, I'm going to leave a link in the podcast description to go check out his podcast. And uh, I will leave you, sir, with, with the only German that I know. Let's see if you hope, let's see, hope this okay, is a real word. Achtung um, lieber. What, what does that mean? Oh, say again, please. Achtung lieber. Achtung lieber. Yeah. Did I say it right? Well, th these are two German words, but oh. they don't make they don't make a lot of sense when they put them together, or maybe I just misunderstand it. I'm not oh, sure. Well, what what do they mean separately? Well, Achtung means actually like attention, attention, okay. please. And Lieber means like rather, like robber, rather, rather. Oh, yeah, I rather do this than that. Yeah. Okay. Well. That's the extent of my German. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, no worries. We can, I can teach you a word every time I'm in here. So yeah. No okay. <laughs> we'll work on that for the next one. Thank you so okay. much, Marcel. I appreciate you. Thank you very much, Tim. See you next time. Bye-bye. You just heard the Things I Think About podcast. If you love what you heard, hate what you heard, or don't know what you just heard, Jim Stroud wants to hear from you. Contact him at jimstroud at jimstroud.com. And while you're at it, share this podcast and spread the word that it's up to us to save America.